Hello, everyone. Derek Steyer here. Thank you for joining us for another edition of a 21 WFMJ podcast. My guest today is Dr. Linda Safe, a scientist with The Ohio State University College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences, and the College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Safe is known nationally and internationally for her work on enteric viruses, including coronaviruses, which affect food-producing animals, wildlife, and humans. Safe is also a member of Ohio State's Infectious Diseases Institute, where she's a co-director for the Viruses and Emerging Pathogens Program. Dr. Safe, thank you so much for joining me today. You're quite welcome. Let me first ask, what sets this coronavirus apart from other illnesses? So <clears throat> we, we all know about seasonal influenza, and it appears that this virus is now um, thought to be more transmissible than seasonal influenza. And I think we've also heard about the other coronavirus that have emerged and caused pandemics. The first one was the SARS that occurred in 2002 and 2003. And this uh, SARS coronavirus, the original one, appears again to have been less transmissible than this one, although it caused a higher death rate. About 10% of those infected um, died of the virus infection. And then MERS is still ongoing in the Middle East, and that happened about a decade after SARS. So that virus um, is thought to have jumped from camels to humans, and that has an even higher death rate of 34%. So right now, although this is, virus is highly transmissible, about 80% of the cases uh, are expected to be mild or even asymptomatic. And so the other 20% are what we're worried about that may require hospitalization. And in more severe cases, around 5%, it was, these are all estimates from the outbreak in China. Um, these patients required um, ICU units. And, and so are these all, they're obviously all coronaviruses. Are they just strains that have mutated or they're all different? So <clears throat> they are all what's classified as a certain group of coronavirus. They're called beta coronaviruses, but they're different lineages of coronavirus in terms of their genetic similarity. So the virus that's closest to this SARS coronavirus 2 is actually the SARS coronavirus, and it's uh, like a sister of this virus. So they're all um, coronavirus, but they're not all identical in terms of their uh, genetic sequence, and also, as I just explained about their ability to cause disease and also how transmissible they are. Certainly, the SARS coronavirus 2 is the most transmissible one that we've seen yet. And so your past experience as an expert in coronavirus research has told you what about how this particular virus behaves? So we think originally the closest virus to this came from a bat. And in fact, most of the mammalian coronavirus that circulate um, originated from bats. And this is true for both humans and the coronavirus in animals. Interesting. So, Interesting. Yeah. So we think uh, we know that we're, there were intermediate mammalian host animals. In other words, they probably did not jump directly from bats to humans, but first infected an intermediate host. So for SARS, this was 
civet cats in the marketplace in China, live animal markets, and for MERS, this was camels in the Middle East. <clears throat> we still don't know what this intermediate host is for the uh, COVID-19. Um, but the difference here with SARS is that for SARS, the virus was not really shed and transmissible until the person developed symptoms. And virtually 100% of the people infected with SARS had fevers. So this was very effective to clinically screen for infected individuals by using temperature checks everywhere. Right, and right. So this was a great help in controlling um, the SARS pandemic. But what we are now seeing with the SARS coronavirus 2 is that many patients apparently can have milder asymptomatic infections, but they can still spread the virus. So this becomes almost like a stealth virus that can spread in asymptomatic cases that don't even know they're infected, but they still can shed the virus and transmit it to other people. Which makes a lot of sense as to why all of the stay-at-home precautions and the extreme measures that we're going exactly. to. Exactly, exactly. Right. Well, we're hearing now that symptoms can include things like losing sense of smell and taste. Is that new information or just we're learning more about this coronavirus now? So I would say that this appears to be new information because that was not really reported, to my knowledge, for SARS or MERS. Mm. Um, the virus does replicate, obviously, in the nasal cavity, and also uh, there's documented evidence it can replicate in the throat and maybe even the tongue. And so many of these viruses, when they replicate in the cells in those tissues, they cause the, the cell to die. And so until those cells turn over and recover and you have like a new coating of taste receptors on your tongue mm -hmm. and also in your nose, the epithelial cells turn over, then presumably for short term we actually could lose the sense of taste, which is connected with the, the smell and also with the tongue. Right, interesting. We hear talk that spring and, and warmer, more humid weather could lead this to diminish or even die off. Is that likely? Well, that's certainly the hope. Yeah. Um, we, we really, as a new emerging virus, we don't know exactly what to expect. Um, we've worked for a long time with a virus in pigs. Um, it's called transmissible gastroenteritis virus. That virus did tend to die out every summer, but then it would reappear in swine herds in the fall and winter again because the virus is less stable in the summer due to heat and also um, sunlight, UV inactivation, and it's much more stable in the winter, especially in frozen state. So this is possible, <clears throat> but then we have examples of the virus continuing to circulate in the Middle East uh, which, of course, um, in Saudi Arabia, the weather is hot year-round. So at this stage, I would say it's unpredictable. But the other thing that happens in the summer, <clears throat> we naturally have more social distancing because we're outdoors. Um, we may not be in confined spaces where the virus is 
spread more readily because you have crowded, very population-dense conditions. So that type of summer social distancing may help, too. Yeah, and so it's just too early to say if this could resurge in the fall and, and be a larger problem again. I think it's too early to say. Yeah. I think the deciding factor there could be how many of the population gets infected and has immunity. It's estimated you need about two-thirds of the population to have immunity to essentially slow down the spread of the virus. So if a high percentage and all the asymptomatics do develop immunity, <clears throat> that may help control the infection in the fall. And also, it's possible that the infection might be less severe in the fall if, if people get antibody. And so those people that have antibody, even if they had mild reinfections, <clears throat> it would not be as severe as the, these original outbreaks. So <clears throat> we, we just don't know what to predict. I mean, we also have the background of the uh, 1918 flu pandemic, when the virus actually started in the spring and summer and then reemerged in the fall in even more deadly form. Right, so right. We have different precedents here, and we, we're not sure which precedent this virus will follow. Well, and I wanted to ask you, many people call this unprecedented times. I can't remember a virus that has shut down countries all across the globe. What has been your reaction to this pandemic? Well, my reaction is we we had two previous coronavirus pandemics, SARS and MERS. We had, in 2009, a flu pandemic. Why are we not better prepared for this emerging disease that everyone, the scientists, were at least aware it's not a matter of if but when? So I've been... <clears throat> very disappointed in the lack of preparedness, uh, I think, especially um, within our public health agencies and pandemic preparedness groups um, in terms of federal government plans for a pandemic. You certainly bring up a great point, and, and hopefully there's a lesson here that, that we learn from this and we now become better prepared for this to happen again. That's, that's hopefully the case. I'm, I'm sure we, we learned a lot of lessons from SARS, and I, at that time I was on a WHO task force on SARS, and there were lots of papers and books afterwards about <clears throat> lessons learned from SARS. And the sad scenario is that we really haven't learned a lot of those lessons, even though we knew things that should have been done better to control SARS. So, unfortunately, we didn't learn as much as we should have from these prior pandemics. I want to finish up, uh, Dr. Safe, with um, you mentioned before a couple of questions ago about immunity. So if you test positive, if you get corona, this, this version of the, the coronavirus, does that mean you are immune? So the situation is I, I also am I'm a mucosal immunologist, so I work on infections of the mucosal tissues, the respiratory tract and the intestine. So usually after these, um, what we often refer to as superficial respiratory or enteric infections because they're on a mucosal surface, 
usually one will develop at least some degree of short-term immunity. But the immunity at the mucosal surface is is not always long-lasting. So if that were the case, we might need booster vaccines just like we use with influenza. And because the other hope that come fall is that we may have by that time antivirals or in the earliest stages even a conditional vaccine that might be able to alleviate some of the infections infections and severity of the infections if this returns. So, you know, that may buy us time to be able to develop these therapies that we don't have now. Right. And so it sounds like now more than ever is is a very important time for our scientists and medical health people to be working on this and figure out some way to help uh, help in this fight. Exactly. And I'm very optimistic, having worked long-term with coronavirologists across the world, that many are now doing exactly that, um, working on antivirals, working on vaccines, and also more short-term treatments, which are passive immunization, which include monoclonal antibodies that actually you... Um, can make antibodies specific for the virus, and then you can inject them into the people that are at most risk, such as like healthcare workers or people before they develop severe infections, mm-hmm. and that can help dampen down the infection and essentially help prevent death. And that they have at least been tried in animal models for SARS and MERS and shown effectiveness. Before I let uh, before I let you go, anything else that you would like to share with our viewers and our listeners? Well, I think the most there are two things to share actually. Um, so this this is uh, Youngstown. Yes. Um, so I understand that Dr. Acton is from Youngstown. Correct. Yes. So I just want to share what uh, shout out to her what outstanding leadership she's exhibiting in terms of Director of Ohio Department of Health and her training and background in medicine and epidemiology is probably ideally suited for dealing with this type of pandemic. And also the fact that she's a scientist and seeking and heeding scientific advice, I think is exactly what's needed to stem this outbreak. So um, certainly also Governor DeWine for taking her advice and implementing it and the advice of other scientists. I think that's what we need. We need to be able to hear and heed the advice of scientists who have spent their careers working uh, either in public health or epidemiology or coronavirus or virology. So I'd, I'd like to emphasize that, but I'd also like to emphasize how much we need to support our health care workers and try to keep them healthy. Absolutely. They're on the front so, lines. we got to have them. Yeah, so if we practice social distancing, I think we can think of that as a way of actually helping our health care workers. Mm-hmm. And the other important factor is the personal protective equipment. Yes. We must find a way to get that to our health care workers. If we don't, they will become sick and then we will suffer even more by not having our doctors and nurses available uh, for sick patients. 
Absolutely. A great point to end on, and that's why we're continuing to try to put out there um, if anyone can donate PPE or any of that equipment, um, we desperately need to get that. So, Dr. Linda Safe, thank you so much for, for joining me with on this podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity.